Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash. Hello, I'm Peter King. Welcome to the MMQB podcast with Peter King, where I take you inside the minds of the biggest influencers in the NFL. This week, a conversation with Albert Breer of the MMQB about Colin Kaepernick's fate and the NFL's Mark Waller on the fate of international expansion. I asked Breer if he was the general manager of the Seattle Seahawks would you sign Colin Kaepernick? Yes, I do. And, and here, here's the big caveat. I asked Waller, how soon might we see a franchise in London? I've always in my head felt that around the 2020 time frame is the time where all of those things should come together. And now my conversation about Colin Kaepernick with Albert Breer of the MMQB. Back. On the MMQB podcast with Peter King, I'm joined by my compatriot at the MMQB, <laughs> Albert Breer. Um, I thought it would be fun this week uh, with so much of the Colin Kaepernick news happening, whether there really is news. I think it's probably more of um, probably wishful thinking slash rumors slash a little bit of news, but the Seattle Seahawks are interested in investigating Colin Kaepernick to sign him as a backup to Russell Wilson, which in the, uh, basically in the, in the three months of the open market on players, uh, this would be the first time essentially that uh, a team would have reached out and talked to Kaepernick if indeed it happens, uh, and or his agent uh, with legitimate interest to bring him in. And I wanted to bring in Albert Breer because I think we may fight like cats and dogs on this <laughs> because I believe that um, that it's, it's silly in this day and age where Kellen Moore and Blaine Gabbard have jobs, uh, nothing against them, but uh, that uh, guy who four and a third years ago was one incomplete pass in the end zone from winning a Super Bowl, is still 29, has 75 NFL starts under his belt, um, is not employed. We all have a very good idea about why he isn't employed, uh, because he appears to be so intently interested in his social causes, perhaps at the expense of his football. So I thought Albert and I would uh, discuss this at some length. And Albert, I'm going to open the floor to you since you're mm -hmm. my guest, even though you also have a podcast on this network. 
Um, I'm going to open the floor to you and ask you to start and give me your feeling about uh, about Kaepernick and uh, whether you think he belongs in the NFL or whether you think it is odd or not odd that here we are in the middle of May and he doesn't have a team. Well, I think where we have to start, and this is where my message can kind of, I think, got misconstrued to some degree. Um, you know, I don't think this starts with the political thing, like the, the, with, with the activism. I, I just don't. Like, I think this starts with how good a player he is and the deterioration of his value on the field. And I'll, I'll ask you a question. Would you build a team around him right now, based on just no, what you see in the field? No, but that's not what we're asking. We're asking is it? We're asking if Colin Kaepernick should be employed by an okay. NFL team. That's okay. different from should you build a team around him. I okay, don't know many people it, right now who think that you should build a team around Colin Kaepernick at least right now. But it relates to that though, because this starts with that. This starts if he was what we thought he would be four years ago. There is absolutely no question that he would have a job, and he would have gotten a job on the first day of free agency, even if he was an intriguing option for a team to build, um, to build around. He would be off the market very, very quickly. To me, this is about him falling into that category of veteran stopgap slash backup, and that raises two problems, I think. The first problem is scheme, and there just aren't a lot of teams that can – Put Colin Kaepernick in a game at the drop of a hat, which is what a backup has to do, without changing a lot of things. And fact is that you know when he was at his best in San Francisco, he was playing for Greg Roman in a system that adapted the stuff that he did at Nevada out of the pistol into an NFL offense, and it worked to to, to a great degree in 2011, 2012, even into 2013. Once. The NFL started to catch up to the option game, and this happened with Tim Tebow and Robert Griffin III the same. Colin Kaepernick was forced to win from the pocket, and he couldn't do it. And so, you know, I think the first problem for Colin Kaepernick is if you're not going to build an offense around him, then he's got to find a place where he fits because no team is going to fit what it does to him. And so that's problem number one is that most teams want – a quarterback who can step into the huddle and run the offense that the starter has been running if the starter gets hurt. And then the second problem, I think, is the activism, if you do consider him a, a veteran stopgap slash backup. Because, look, the bottom line is I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but every NFL coach wants their backup players, the 30th or 40th guy under the ro- on the roster, to just blend in with the furniture. And for better or worse, that's what Blaine Gabbert and Matt Barkley and Brian Hoyt, that's what all of those guys are going to do. It's, you know, and I'm not saying it's, I'm not, again, I'm not, I'm, this isn't a value judgment on what Colin Kaepernick's doing. I think he's doing a lot of good. Bottom line is that if you sign the guy, Fox News is going to be there the next day, CNN's going to be there the next day, and football coaches aren't looking for that sort of attention. And so, to me, this is about, first, the deterioration of his football skill, where if he was still, if he was the player, if he became the player we thought he'd be um, back in 2012, um, then there's no question he'd have work somewhere, probably still in San Francisco, even if he was an intriguing option for somebody to build an offense around, which is less than what we thought he'd be he'd have a job right now. This is about him sinking to that level of and into that bucket where Josh McCown and Brian Hoyer and Matt Barkley and all those guys exist, which is veteran stopgap slash backup. 
And when you're in that bucket, you have to fit what other people are doing from a scheme standpoint, which creates a roadblock for cap. And most coaches want you to just blend in with the rest of the team. And that creates another problem for cap. Um, clearly, uh, I, I think about 90% of what you say is, uh, is right on target. I think my biggest issue with what you say and with the general perception of Colin Kaepernick right now is that you may decide after you talk to him and after you talk to his agent, you may decide that he's a handful that you don't want to take on. What bothers me about what the NFL has done is they have presumed from afar that Colin Kaepernick is going to be a gigantic distraction on our team, and we don't want him. Well, how do you know? How do you know where his head is at right now? And I would ask this question. Mm-hmm. Let's say it's October 10th. Let's say it's week. you're entering week five, and Russell Wilson is scrambling out of bounds to evade nine rushers uh, you know, against Arizona the previous Sunday, and, and obviously I don't even know who they're playing, but in, you know, evading a huge rush the previous week, uh, he suffers an injury and he's lost for the season. Okay, I'm just, I'm, I'm asking you and I'm asking everybody out there, who would you like to have come in for the last 11 games of the regular season? Trevon Boykin <laughs> or Colin Kaepernick? And Colin Kaepernick, who, by the way, last year in the last game of the season had five incompletions with a bad San Francisco team against the Seahawks uh, in his last game as a 49er on New Year's Day and basically ran a uh, you know ran the 49ers into contention in that game against a strong playoff team. So I I'm simply making the point that, um, the reason why he's such a good fit with the Seahawks is that you don't want a backup where you say, okay, go sit in the corner um, and you go be, uh, uh, you know, you go be Jim Sorgi, okay, mm-hmm. for, 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 for this season and we won't even worry about you. The fact is there are backups in certain places where you say, you know what? there's a good chance that that guy's going to have to play at some point this year. And even though Russell Wilson has been indestructible, we started to see signs last year during the season that he was destructible. Mm -hmm. And uh, in my mind, for 11 games, if you're going to tell me that we got a better chance to win with Trevon Boykin or the other three guys in there who've never taken an NFL snap who are in camp with them right now, uh, instead of Colin Kaepernick, I would just say I think you're you're way off. So my feeling is not that you're you're going to design an offense for him or anything like that. That's why you ask him these questions. Here's what we play. Here's the offense we're going to want you to learn. How do you feel about that? Will you study it? What's your attitude about it? Can you do this? And then make a judgment at that point. But you know, to to just sit out there and say, well, we're afraid of Colin Kaepernick and the divisiveness that he might bring in one of the most uh, liberal markets mm-hmm. in the United States. Uh, I just I just think is is extremely closed minded 
whether it be by Seattle well, or whether it be in another city uh, that has a backup quarterback need. Well, let me ask you this. Is Seattle unique? I think Seattle, I don't know if it's unique, but I think Seattle has a lot of points that le- that lends it to being a Kaepernick market. Because, which, is why, which is why you're making my point now. That's why he's still employed, because there aren't very many places like that. And I'd actually argue that San Francisco was, outside of the fact that the team around him wasn't very good, San Francisco was uniquely qualified to handle Colin Kaepernick. Well, they were last uniquely year. qualified, but it's not a Kyle. Sh- he's not a Kyle Shanahan quarterback. Well, but they were I last mean, last year. Last year, he was he was in the perfect system for him. Right, right. Like, but, he, like there were there was no there's no system in the NFL anymore that was as good for a quarterback like Colin Kaepernick than Chip Kelly's system was last year. There's no more liberal market in the NFL than San Francisco. That locker room at like. As as much of a shell of what it used to be as it became, it, it still it had some of the same qualities that Seattle had, and so San Francisco was. I mean, uh, he was in a position like people undersell. Like he was in a position to succeed last year, and he still went one in ten. And the numbers still, if you really look deeper at them, he was thirtieth in the NFL in yards per in 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 passing yards per game among qualifiers. He was near the bottom of the league in yards per attempt. He was. He wasn't bad. He wasn't horrible, but in in a in in a in a situation that was set up for him, he wasn't great. Now, I will say this: what you said about Seattle, this is another one of those unique situations. The system works for him because he can step in and he can do some of the things that Russell Wilson do- does. That's a very free thinking locker room with a free thinking coach. There's no question about that. There aren't very many places like that in the NFL, so I'm not. Peter, the problem is I'm not dealing here with what should be. I'm dealing with what what is. And what is is that Seattle is a very, very rare spot in the NFL. What they can do scheme-wise for Cap, what that, how he fits into that locker room, how the coach thinks. That's why he's unemployed. There aren't very many places like that across the NFL. So maybe, maybe that means Seattle should have gotten to him quicker. I'm just telling you, like it's not like there are a dozen – situations out there in the NFL where you know they would have brought him in but you know the the owner said no i mean there's just there aren't very many situations period that are as uniquely if qualified you're in to a, absorb if you're in right Colin now, Kaepernick as Seattle is right now if you let's just say for the sake of argument that i think it's arguable that that Kellen Moore will contend to be the backup quarterback to mm-hmm. Dak Prescott in Dallas. And that is significantly more of a standard NFL offense. Okay. Uh, yep. You know, it's it's not going to ask Dak Prescott to make 10 plays a game on the run. Right. But I am just simply asking you, okay, that if you are the Dallas Cowboys, you know, my question is, are you saying it's not worth a visit or a phone call mm-hmm. to ask Colin Kaepernick and to try to make some determination rather than making it from 1500 miles away. Oh, he can't fit here. Oh, we're, we're going to, we're going to be willing to go with, you know, with Kellen Moore, if indeed that's what they end up doing. And we don't know if that's what they're going Mm -hmm. to do, but I'm just, I understand exactly what you say. He doesn't fit a lot of things, but, but when you have to go play 10 games with your backup quarterback, I'm just asking you right now, can you honestly tell me you'd rather have Kellen Moore in any system than, mm. than Colin Kaepernick? 
See, but the thing is, we're talking about an argument here, too, where you're just talking about a circumstance that's unlikely, which is that your quarterback's going to go down for 10 games. What what you have to take into account here is that Kellen Moore was a tremendous resource to Dak Prescott in Dallas as he learned the offense, more so than Tony Romo was last year. And so there are... There are different elements at work with a lot of these teams, I think. And, and take like I, I know a lot of people have thrown out there the Jets or the 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 Niners, right? Well, okay. So say you're Johnny Morton, the new offensive coordinator with the Jets, or you're Kyle Shanahan in San Francisco, and you're trying to build a foundation for an offensive system that you hope will last there for a decade. Does it make any sense? No, I would to bring not in a guy a, who's. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. That, I'm not saying that you should. That that there are. 20 teams in the NFL that that in my opinion he should go and play for mm-hmm. because he is different he is an acquired taste but there are at least 10 that I could sit here right now and name that would be that would be uh that would be advantaged compared to the backup quarterback they have right now like I I find it hard to believe okay I really do that Bruce Arians. Now I know that he absolutely loves uh, Drew Stanton. Drew Stanton. Okay, he does. He's and and some of that may be just sort of a security blanket kind of love. He knows everything that the Cardinals want to do. I get it. I get it. But I would just ask the exact same question to Bruce Arians. Do you really believe that if you had Colin Kaepernick in your building on April first? And he was there for four months with your team, learning your system and everything like that. Do you really believe that you have a 38-year-old quarterback on your team? Do you mm-hmm. really believe that you'd rather play Drew Stanton or Blaine Gabbert? And maybe he would. But I just I think that there are too many teams that don't look at the reality, even though like last year was a tremendously almost misleading year. I believe that only like 36 starting quarterback mm-hmm. starts were missed last year. And a bunch of those were in Cleveland where they had the merry-go-round at starting quarterback, and it almost doesn't matter there who started. But So it was a very, very healthy year, relatively speaking, for starting quarterbacks in the league. There's no indication whether that's going to be a long-term trend. You just don't know it. Mm-hmm. And I just look at a lot of places in this league. Now, Dallas is not a particularly likely place that you'll need a backup quarterback because their offensive line is so good. Prescott's young. He's got a very great knowledge in the pocket of how to get out of danger and everything like that. But we could name a bunch of other a bunch of other teams, a bunch of other places. We could name the Saints. Yeah. We could name a bunch of places. All I'm saying is that the reality of having a backup quarterback, yes, you want him to be a really smart Josh McCown coach on the field, all that stuff. You want that. But you also want the reality of knowing that this guy's going to give us a chance to win when and if he has to play. Well, and the problem, I think, is that, you know, in a lot of the places that you're talking about, Carolina be one where he would definitely fit the scheme, right? Like yeah. Carolina, he would absolutely fit the scheme. But do they throw Derek Anderson out of the building? You know, like like do they throw no, a guy? No, I don't even gonna, think I mean, that. I'm not like, even. I don't like even a, necessarily think of Carolina as a Colin Kaepernick. I would put. I would put. I would put Arizona in the same category for the reasons that you laid out. There is that Drew Stanton seen as a valuable commodity in that building, and for better or worse, like a lot of times, 
the way these coaches look at it is we don't need somebody to be spectacular. We just need somebody to come in and drive the bus for a month. If we lose the guy for 10 or 12 games, we're screwed anyway. If we lose a guy for three or four games, we need somebody who can keep us afloat. And I, I think the big thing for a lot of these coaches, at least the guys I've talked to, is can the guy come into the huddle and just maintain some level of normalcy for the other 10 guys in there and maintain some level of identity on offense for the 10 guys in there. And the problem with cap, you know, and again, I mean, a lot of this is look, you know, when he was in San Francisco, what he was asked to do is a lot of the stuff that he did in college. And last year he did some stuff for chip that, you know, a lot of other NFL teams aren't doing. Can he come in and say it's for three or four weeks? Can he maintain some level of normalcy for everyone else in the huddle where they can maintain that identity that they've built? They don't have to flip things upside down. You're not making things harder on everybody else. I think that's the thing that's hard for a lot of these coaches is they look at it and they say, you know, I just rather have a guy who, you know, maybe he's not great, but he's going to go in there and it's not going to be a disaster. It's he's going to be a, he's going to be a bus driver for us. And the problem is Peter is that there's just, if we look at it, you look in 11 and you, or you look in 12 and you look in 13, what Colin Kaepernick did, right? And who he was as a quarterback and, and going back to, to 2012, 12, he won the job, 13, he kept it. 12 and 13, they were doing a lot of the pistol stuff. They, they, they didn't ask him to win from the pocket a ton. Same as Robert Griffin in, in Washington, same as Tim Tebow in, in Denver. And, there just came a point where the NFL started to catch up with the option stuff. And it doesn't mean you can't be effective with it, but NFL defenses learned, okay, here's how we slow that down. And here's how we make those guys win from the pocket. And the guys who could win from the pocket, like Cam Newton, good example of it, guys who could win from the pocket were able to work past that. And for better or worse, cap was one of the guys who wasn't accurate enough. Didn't have the touch to, to, to work past that. And that's why I think to some degree he had a small revival last year in San Francisco because Chip was a little bit more creative in the way that he used him and he was invested in using a quarterback the way the cap is meant to be used. We're going to finish up, but I'm going to ask you this question yeah. right now. If you're the Seattle Seahawks right now, do you sign him? Do you not sign him? Yes, I do. And, and here here's the big caveat, okay? I, I think that and I, I think all, like in the last two, three years, this would have been an easier decision for him. Here's what I want to ask you, Peter, because you've been there a lot. You know the guys there and everything else. In an offseason where the Richard Sherman things flared up and you had the Frank Clark thing the last couple of weeks and you've got a couple of important players going into contract years and it was just a very loud end to the 2016 season. They're tired of the crap is what you're saying. Yeah, are you you concerned about – are you – like if you're Seattle, are you concerned about adding – and like again, this isn't isn't a value judgment on cap. No, I I know exactly what you're saying. I know, and I'll tell you exactly how I feel about this. Yeah. This is why you talk to the guy. You know, and in my opinion, here's what you say. Say, listen, okay, you do whatever you want on Tuesday. That's your day off, okay? Six days a week, we want to know that we're not going to open up the paper and see Kaepernick protesting with uh, Black Lives Matters activists in downtown Seattle, okay? While that is certainly your right, okay, we don't want to deal with that during the season. If two days after the season, you want to uh, you know, go do whatever you want to do in life, that's fine. But 
And, and I think you're absolutely right. Pete Carroll last year, he thought that finally, with Marshawn Lynch gone, things were going to settle down a little bit. And so what happens? Richard Sherman reams out uh, Daryl Bevel, the offensive coordinator on the sidelines, and Pete goes nuts. I think he went nuts privately, but he clearly was very unhappy with Sherman. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't want any more of that. But my whole point about this is, if you ask Colin Kaepernick and he goes, you know, uh, I understand what you're saying, but I'm not willing to do that. When I leave here on Saturdays, if I want to go and do a, a protest somewhere about something, I'm going. Well, you say, hey, listen, it's been great talking to you. We mm-hmm. totally support your right to do whatever you want, but we just simply don't need that right now. If and he you know says that, that's fine. But if he says, hey, listen, I'm not doing any off-field stuff until the end of the football season or, you know, Tuesday, one day a week, whatever, it, whatever it is. All I'm saying is that they don't know what it is because they haven't talked to him. And that's the maddening part of this. Yeah, I understand anyway. that. You know, it's interesting that the, I just, I still think the best comparison to this, and look, I think he's a better player than Tebow, but I still think Tim Tebow is the best comparison because you had the scheme issue with Tebow, which, you know, caused problems for him in finding work. And then, you know, like a lot of the work that T- Tebow did would be considered very noble, you know, but the fact of the matter is, is that he brought something with him wherever he went, you know, and I, I think that there's a blueprint out there now. If you look at the way that the New England Patriots handled Tim Tebow in 2013, there's a blueprint for how to how to deal with the extra off-field stuff that, again, isn't bad stuff, but just is there. There's a blueprint on how to deal with it. It's just, again, my whole point was, there aren't a lot of coaches that want to make that sort of concession for a backup player. Albert Breer, thanks a lot for giving me your points on these, even though most of them are really <laughs> wrong. <laughs> I still love I hate you. Being, I hate being, I love the, it's really difficult, Peter, being right all the time. But, I know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've noticed that. You and Twitter, that's what I've always noticed about you. Anyway, Albert Breer, thanks a lot for joining me on the podcast. All right. Thanks, Peter. This is the MMQB Podcast. I don't know about you, but I do not like to shave. Honestly, who does? Nicks, scratches, those aren't fun. Let's face it, razors are super expensive. That is, I thought they were until I got my first package of razors from Harry's. Now look, sometimes we sit here and we read these ads, and do we really totally breathe the gospel of every product? No, we don't. But I'm just telling you right now, I love these razors. These razors rock. But let me get into this in a second. For decades, one big razor company has relentlessly increased prices and reaped immense profits at the expense of its customers. So Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were fed up with getting ripped off, started Harry's to fix shaving. Harry's knew there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own blade factory. By taking less profit and selling directly to you over the internet, Harry's offers their blades at half the price. Now here's where it gets good for you. Harry's is so confident you'll love their blades, they're giving you their trial set for free. All you have to do is cover the $3 shipping fee. Your free trial set includes a weighted ergonomic razor handle, which I'm going to get to in a second, but I love this handle. Also includes five precision-engineered blades with a lubricating strip and a trimmer blade. And 
You'll also get rich lathering shave gel and a travel blade cover. That's a $13 value for you to try. Stop messing around and get started shaving with Harry's today by claiming your free trial offer, a $13 value for free. You just cover the shipping. Now, one last thing I want to say about these razors. Okay, I don't know about you, but I shave in the shower. And when I've got my razor handle, okay, a lot of times my fingers just slip off the razor handle and it's hard to basically continue shaving because you have to keep replacing the razor handle. You have to keep putting your hand further down on the end. But with Harry's, their razor handle, you just glom onto it. It's like your fingers are Velcro. It's fantastic. So even if your fingers are wet and slippery, they're not going to slip on this handle. A great idea. And look, I'm a big fan of the price as well. But anyway, I really like these razors. And if you have to shave, you should use these razors. Now, to get your free trial set, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, and shave gel, go to harrys.com slash king right now. That's harrys.com slash king. Back on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. We're here at the NFL offices on Park Avenue in Manhattan uh, with Mark Waller, who runs the NFL's international unit. I always, whenever I see Mark, I have a question that everybody in the world asks him, which I'm not going to ask him first, (laughs) but I'm going to ask him later, which is, how long is it going to be before there's an NFL team in London? Because every time I see him, he gets tired of me asking that question. But anyway, Mark, a pleasure uh, to be here in your office with you in Manhattan today talking about NFL expansion one of these days across the pond. Well, thank you, Peter. Good to, good to be here in my office. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I want to take you back in time to October 28, 2007. On October 28, 2007, a fairly momentous event happened in the realm of NFL and international football. Do you remember what it is? I'm hoping that was the uh, that was the first uh, game in London. Was that the date? That's the first game in yeah, London. Good. That's the first game that counted. That counted in yeah. London. The first, first real, real game. game. Yeah. Okay, but I'm going to ask you something about. October 28, 2007, about a 12-year-old boy living in Chalk Farms, England, a suburb of London, I take it, and who watched that game on television. His name is Jermaine Illuminor. Yep. And Jermaine Illuminor was a young boy who played rugby, dabbled in cricket, but mostly played rugby and had no idea what American football was until that day. But there on whatever it is, Sky or BBC, whatever it was, Channel 4, he watched the New York Giants play the Miami Dolphins. And he said, wow, that really looks fun. And he looked at the stands. It was a rainy day. It was a very rainy day. But he looked at the stands and he said, my gosh, you're playing at Wembley Stadium. They had 78,000 people there. There must be something to this thing. So he started reading about American football. He started being interested in American football. And soon, he and his dad moved to New Jersey, 
to Morris County, New Jersey, which is maybe about a 40-minute ride from the Meadowlands, and he starts playing American football. He gets very into it, and lo and behold, it leads him eventually to get a scholarship to play football at Texas A&M. And the reason I bring up Jermaine Illuminor is that he's the first person who I believe has roots in the American football, the international series being played in England and going on as a young boy watching this game and going on to love football, to be drafted this year with the 159th pick in the NFL draft, the fifth round by the Baltimore Ravens. And I wanted to ask you, Mark Waller, what is the significance of Jermaine Illuminar being drafted this year by the Baltimore Ravens? Uh, it's a huge story for, for us. I, I shared um, that story actually with Clark Hunt, the chairman of the international committee, when, when obviously it, it happened. And Clark literally said to me, he said, Mark, that in itself is a justification for what we started in 2007, that, that just by seeing a game, seeing it being played in your country prompted somebody to take up the dream and, and ultimately make it now a, a reality. I mean, it's a huge testament, I think, to, first of all, the appeal of our game. Uh, I've always felt that our game, you have to be close to it. It has an electricity to it. It has a, a passion to it that, that the closer you are to it, the more you fall in love with the game. And so taking real games, as you described them, to me was always such an integral part of letting people understand as directly as you can what it means to be part of the National Football League and playing a game in England at Wembley Stadium, truly iconic stadium, and having a, an English boy at the time kind of go, hey, that's, that's something I want to do. And that was not a great game, let's be honest, in, in the, I think when they were 13 arrived, to 10. I yeah. mean, it was a sloppy It was a sloppy game on a very sloppy field. If, because Wembley at the time really was not sort of built for American football. It was much more of a soccer field and a brand new soccer field because the stadium had only just been uh, reopened. That was, I think, the second or third event at the new Wembley Stadium. So I, th I think it shows you the, the passion that our game can inspire. Uh, and that's why I've always been really so keen on this concept that if, if people can experience the real thing, they'll fall in love with it. Mark, why do you think you've sold out all but one of how many, 17 games? Yep. You've sold out all but – well, hang on. Is, are, the, are these – is this year's game – games included in that no they're, and they're sold so that'll out be as well. 21 yeah. and yeah. they're all sold, they're all out, sold this out this year yeah. so all but one of the games have been sold out and the one game that wasn't sold out happened in 2011 when you weren't sure for a long time whether there was going to be a strike or whatever the uh, because that was the year that the new cba got signed yeah late. if you remember i think august right was when we knew that the season was taking place so we didn't go on sale i don't think until the end of August for a game that I think was middle of October. So. Yeah. So, but 20 of the 21 games you've had over there have been sellouts. 
And I wonder, even to the rah-rah element in the NFL offices, and I know that there are many of them, and I know from talking to owners that there are a lot of owners that are hugely interested in seeing a team in London. It's got to be a little bit of a surprise that you've, in essence, sold out every game and not only sold them out, but sold them out fast. Um, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'll be honest, I'm not surprised. I, I've, I've always felt that the UK as a, as a market is an incredible sports market. If you look at the, the marketplace, they're passionate about soccer, they're passionate about golf, they're passionate about tennis, Formula One. So I've always felt that there was a, a space for us. And a lot of people in the UK have been to the US. A lot of people have friends or family, spent vacations, been to Disney World. So there's a real affinity for things American. So I do believe that in, in my mind, I'm not surprised. I think what has potentially surprised people is how we've been able to grow the number of games to the point now where we're playing four games. I, I do think that has, has been something. I'm incredibly proud of that. I, I, I look at half a season of games and selling out half a season of games in two different um, stadiums with, yeah, with a very diverse fan base that travels not only from all over the UK, but a lot from Europe as well. That, to me, is, is sort of the surprising aspect of it, is the scale um, that it's taken Don't on. Don't you think that so many people who go to these games are people not only from uh, from England and certainly from the the area around London. There seems to me to be a lot of people, when I read about it, when I hear about it, who come in for the day from Munich or from Barcelona or huge fans. If there's a Vikings game, uh, there's Vikings fans. There might be a family coming from, you know, Scandinavia. Yep. But But so tell me, what do your numbers say about people who come to the games from London versus around the continent? Sure. Um, about 90% of the people that, that go to the games are from the UK. Um, the other 10% are split relatively equally, about 5% Americans who've traveled over and 5% from the rest of Europe. Um, so that's the European fans that are coming in, maybe 6 or 7% on a, depending on the, the matchup. And of the 90% who are Brits approximately half of them are within two hours of London and the other half come from Wales and Liverpool and Edinburgh and Manchester and Newcastle and, and all over the UK. Um, so th at its core, we have about 40,000 people who we would consider season ticket holders. So they buy tickets to all four games and they go to all four games. They tend to be the ones that live closer to London are able to make the commitment on a re relatively frequent basis. And then you get a lot of people who will make a single journey. We, we just got a great uh, article from Australia. There are 30, I think at the moment, 36 Australians who are making the trip from Australia to one of the games in London. I, I think it's the, the Jags-Ravens uh, game. Uh, and they all wrote to us and sort of said, hey, could we do something for an Australian NFL fan club so you've now got sort of 
countries sort of planning little community fan trips to go to the the London Games, which again I think just shows you what a great community it is. It's it, if you've been to one of those games, there's jerseys from all 32 teams, jerseys from most of the NFL Europe uh, teams and World League teams that, that used to exist. And it it's like a gathering of the clans. It's just a great place to come and celebrate the games, which, again, is why I'm not surprised that, that it's it's sort of built. I am surprised at the scale of it. I uh, took a trip, as you know, to... Um to the UK with some players, some former players, uh, you know, to sort of document, you know, what's going on right now in the UK and sort of the fan interest. And, you know, what I'm probably going to write about, I'm going to write here in the next couple of weeks, what I'm probably going to write about that really interested me a lot was the knowledge of these fans. These are not people who say, "Oh my God, the ball the ball isn't round." You know, they they <laughs> they're into it. And yep. we were talking before, and I said, "There's the craziest thing. We're in we're in Scotland, and some guy asked a question at the event in Scotland with NFL players up front. Do you think the Ravens uh, are going to draft Derek Barnett?" And I said, "Man, how do you know who Derek <laughs> Barnett is?" And so you just that. I'm not saying it blew me away, but my what I walked away from there thinking is it's not a novelty act. Yep. These people are serious. They're really serious. And um, so I guess I would, I would just ask you, I mean, is there much doubt in your mind that if you put a team over there that it would be supported, that it would consistently sell out? Or what are your remaining doubts about putting a team in London? I, I only have one doubt left, and that is, could a team play in London year in, year out, and be competitive, and be competitive enough to be a realistic contender for Super Bowl on an ongoing basis? That sustainability of competitiveness given the incremental travel that would be required for any team that was was London-based. And ultimately, sustainability of competitiveness is what makes, I think, our league unique. Every year, all 32 sets of fans believe that their team in that year can be competitive. But I've I've already thought of this. You solved it? Do you want... No, I've already <laughs> thought of how, how you could do this. Mm-hmm. Okay? What you do is you have... They got to play eight road games yep. other than the preseason games. They got to play eight road games in the United States. So let's talk about those eight road games. What you do is you have a three game road trip at the end of September. You have a three game road trip at the end of October. Mm-hmm. And then you have a two game road trip in the middle of December. So, in other words, you would end up playing, let's say, your first two games at home. Yep. Then you go on the road for three. Then you play your next three at home, and you go on the road for three. But I don't think it is – I think there are other logistical problems with a team over there. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest logistical problem is the fact that um, your left tackle gets hurt and you need a left tackle, and the number one guy on your head coach's shortlist lives in Tacoma, Washington. 
So you need right away to to work him out to see if he's going to be available. So a would you fly him all the way over to London, or would you have some facility somewhere, somewhere in the in United the States yeah. to do that, so that during the season you can do the same kind of things that the Dallas Cowboys and yep. the Chicago Bears do? I think you almost need to have a bi-country, a bi-continental uh, experience yep. of this team. How would you handle, in your opinion, that kind of logistical issue? Well, I think, um, first of all, I think your scheduling framework is is spot on. I, I think you would have to schedule in that way. And similarly, I think your your, your sort of identification of the, the issue of finding replacement players for injuries is one that needs solving. So you, you would, I think, end up with two centers of gravity. You'd be based in London, let's say, but you'd have a a training facility maybe in Florida or Georgia, somewhere on you know, convenient on the East Coast, so that you knew when you went over for your three-week road trip in the States, you had somewhere to be based out of, somewhere where you could keep coaching staff and backup staff, that sort of thing. So there's a cost component to that. That's obviously more expensive than running any other team. No other team would have to cope either with the travel and logistics expenses or the second facility expenses so we'd have to solve that and i presume we'd need to solve that within some form of the collective bargaining uh, agreement because there's also a player component and a working conditions component there but i don't think there's anything that's insurmountable um as you look at the issues you can you can i certainly take a view that the issues that we identify have a solution to them how we prove them out is the hard bit. So how do you do that? Eight? I'll tell you how you do it. You go down to Flowery Branch. I thought you were interviewing me. No, <laughs> no, I'm just telling you. You go down to Flowery Branch, Georgia, yep. mm-hmm. and you look at what Arthur Blank has done with his facility yep. at the Atlanta mm-hmm. Falcons. Now, for those uh, who are listening to this podcast and who don't know what I'm talking about, Arthur Blank did what I think is a really, really smart thing. He built his, uh, his offices and training facility about 45 minutes northeast of Atlanta. And most of the players and executives live somewhere out in the sprawl mm-hmm. of that area of Atlanta. But what their facility is so interesting is that they have what I would call these luxury dormitories yep. that are built for huge human beings, huge beds, Huge rooms, huge doorways, right. just really cool apartments that you have right on campus. And to me, I have always thought to myself, so let's say you're a team from London. Mm-hmm. And let's say that it would be smart for you to have training camp most of the time, most of it somewhere in the United in the States. US. Yep. Okay. So you have your training camp somewhere around Atlanta. Why? Atlanta Hartsfield International Airport, mm-hmm. one of the greatest airports in the world to go back and forth to London. Yep. Okay, You do it there, and the climate is perfect mm-hmm. to do that because almost year-round you'd be able to work players out. You'd be able to have training camp and all that other stuff. But I guess my, my whole point is I, I wonder, getting back to things that are different from logistics, will the NFL ex- establishment – buy this well i think one of the things i think we learned from the the la experience is 
the NFL establishment is driven by the desire of its owners. And so we were out of LA, I can't remember how many years, you'll know that better 21. than 21. And for a large part of that every year, it was sort of, how can we not be in LA, but nothing moved. And then three years ago, four years ago, whenever it was, a couple of owners decided, we're going to buy land in LA, we're going to build a stadium in LA, a team's going to move to LA, and three years later, not one, but two teams have moved. So my view on, on this is, in that respect, is very simple, is an owner or two at some point will look at the marketplace, look at the work that we've done, both on the fan side, look at the stadium options that we've created, look at the economic opportunities of sponsorship market and media market, and will say, that's an opportunity I can't afford to miss out on. And so I've always felt that our job as uh, in the international side of the league in this respect is get the market ready and give the ownership every option so that when somebody wants to make that choice, you've developed it for them and they can make that choice. So the stadium scenario that we had when we first went to Wembley, and Wembley's a great venue, but it's not our stadium. It plays a lot of England soccer games, so we can't have scheduling flexibility, which we need as a league. So we went to Twickenham, we've got Twickenham, and we'll have Tottenham in two years' time. That way, an owner can say, right, there are three stadium options for me. I've got the choice. I could go and play there. I want to ask you a bit about Tottenham, because I don't think the average American fan, football fan, understands exactly what happened when you guys announced the Tottenham Stadium Agreement, whatever, a year or so Mm -hmm. ago, whenever you did that. But what I find really interesting about it is you made, and I want you to explain this to me, you made a 10-year deal Mm -hmm. with Tottenham that you would put some number of games in this stadium. Yep. And the owner of the Tottenham Hotspur, if I'm right, you know, the Premier League team, Mm -hmm. this owner is making a huge bet that one day he will have an NFL franchise playing in his stadium. Now... Tell me where I'm wrong, and, or and just tell me the significance of what this stadium deal in Tottenham actually is. Well, I think, first of all, you're right. We made a 10-year commitment, and we made a 10-year commitment to play a minimum of two games so that's per season. So that's the, uh, the commitment. I, I think the, the, there's a couple of milestones in it. First of all, I think it's fair to say that in the world of competitive sport, the two most successful leagues in the world are the NFL and the EPL. So the idea that one... The Premier League, the Premier League, soccer, yeah. Yep. So the idea that one stadium could potentially host both formats of that game is breakthrough in of itself. Then if you look at the facility, the concept that you're going to roll out the soccer field and underneath will be the NFL field is a breakthrough because from a scheduling the NFL field is going to be field turf? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So you'll basically roll the soccer field out, and the NFL field turf will be underneath, ready to play on. Just for people who don't know, and I'm not sure I know, why can't you use the same surface for both sports? So the, the, there's a couple of things. First of all, if you want to play on back-to-back days on a weekend, so if you wanted to play a Premier League game on a Saturday and an NFL game on a Sunday, you've got things like marking the field, field paint, wear and tear, cutting up the turf. But also, a soccer field is, is essentially designed for true bounce 
and it's designed for speed. An NFL field, if you think about it, is designed for traction, leverage, and a lot of power. Uh, and so actually the grass is different, the, the, the earth texture uh, is different. So just the field itself is different. It's why, to be honest, if you talk to the players who've played in Twickenham, they would actually prefer to play in Twickenham than Wembley because the field in Twickenham is a rugby field and rugby as a game requires a lot more leverage and a lot more traction than soccer. So actually the, the grass has been designed for rugby. It's, it's sort of closer to, to our sport. But also if you think about the sports around the stadium, soccer field, you sit right up close to the field. The players don't stand on the touchlines. They all sit down. Whereas for our game, the players are all on the touch, touch lines and the fans are moved back. So when you roll out the soccer field, you've created that gap around the field for our players to be able to stand on the sidelines and not block anybody's view. Because what you've done is you've also dropped the playing surface from soccer down by about five feet. So when you roll out the soccer field, you've created an incremental five feet of depth, which means that people can stand on the sidelines and watch, and the fans in the stands can still see. So there's a huge amount of technical work that's gone in. So with a bit of luck and some good planning, you could potentially play an NFL, EPL, doubleheader game on the same day. You could play a Premier League game, reconfigure the stadium, and play an NFL game back-to-back, -back, which would be a truly extraordinary proposition. doubleheader. Yeah. yeah, and you think of it from a fan perspective, what, what a great proposition that is. So the two greatest sports leagues in the world, and you get to go to a weekend or a day and see both. I mean, that's a, that's a, smart, that's a smart concept. So even if a team doesn't move there, per se, the idea that in one venue you could deliver both experiences to a world-class level is breakthrough because generally speaking a soccer stadium is not great for NFL football and an NFL stadium is not great for soccer because they're built differently the, the games are played differently so this stadium will truly be dual purpose which is extraordinary I think why should the NFL be in England I, I think probably the main reason is it's the second largest sports market in the world and you can call it largest sports market in the world by number of fans of sports, amount of revenue generated by sports, number of people who participate and play in sport. It's a sporting nation. If you were going to pick somewhere in the world, then that, I think, would be the obvious or one of the obvious places to be. There's obviously a proximity in Canada, which would be a great choice. Mexico, we've got incredible fan base as well. But if you kind of look at globalization of sport, UK is a great market. The other thing, and this, I think, is, is sort of, key for us longer term when you play in the UK because of the time zones you're actually playing early in America and late in Asia on the same day I would argue one of the reasons that EPL and European soccer teams are so popular in the Far East is the fact that they happen to play in the middle of the day on a Saturday and Sunday it means they go into Asia late in the day on a Saturday and Sunday as live so, games. So okay let's 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 figure this out. A 1 o'clock Eastern time game in London. Let's do the time now. 6 o'clock in, in the UK. Yeah, 6 o'clock in the UK. And that's 1 a.m. in China. 
The reason we've pushed hard for one o'clock kickoffs or two o'clock kickoffs in the UK is you get a nine or ten o'clock kickoff in the US in the morning, and you get a nine or ten o'clock kickoff in China in the evening. So on the same day, everyone in the world can watch the game live. That's the beauty of the European time zones, and I would argue one of the reasons why soccer has become so popular globally is the the time it's played suits the world. Whereas if you play your sport in the US, it's much less suitable, particularly for Asian time zones. And as Asia grows in importance, I mean, I'll, I'll give you, the, this is the best example I can think of. When we play a Thursday night game in the States, it goes in on Friday morning into China. When we play a Sunday afternoon game, it goes in Sunday middle of the night. And Sunday night is Monday morning and Monday night is Tuesday morning. So there's actually no live NFL games in China on either Saturday or Sunday. So the time when most people watch live sport, because of the time zones and the way we schedule, none of our games actually go in live on the weekend at a time where people watch. Whereas wow. if you're playing in London, yeah. if you're playing at yeah, 3 o'clock on, 2 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon in London, that's 9 o'clock at night in Asia. It's a great time. Finishing up with Mark Waller, who oversees international development for the NFL. Mark, uh, you have a gut feeling as you sit here right now. What's the magic year that this could happen? I've, I've always believed that as you look into the next round of our media deals and the next round of the CBA, the next generation of locations to play in if it's London that's a logical time to do it because it will need CBA negotiation it will need to be contemplated within the digital media world that we now live in and so I've always in my head felt that around the 2020 time frame is the time where all of those things should come together we'll have got the market ready, we'll have built the fan base, we'll have proved out the stadiums, we'll have tested all the logistics, found the base in Atlanta or yeah, wherever it happens to be. And at the same time, the media deals and the CBA would all be coming together. And so in that point, you'd be able to put the whole thing together. Last question for you. Uh, probably about six weeks ago, I wrote a note in my column that I got some very interesting reaction for overseas. I said that so with the Raiders going to Vegas, it seemed to me anyway to make sense that why can't the Raiders take half of their home games the year that they're lame ducks and just put them over in London and have them be, you know, have them play two two-game homestands, you know, at some point in 2019. So will there be a time, do you see, more than four games before an NFL team gets there full-time? Or do you think four games is pretty much the sweet spot right now? I, I don't think we need to play more games in order to get a team. So I don't think you need to go from four to five, five to six, six to seven. But again, I go back to my job is to make sure that if the Raiders decided that there was a year where they didn't have a place to play, London would at least be worthy of con consideration and, and evaluation. They may decide it's not a good idea. They may have a better option on the U.S. 
in the US, I don't know, but that's my job. My job is, hey, if you find in your three years of transition or, or you know, any other team, you find that you are looking for a place that gives you great experience, great fans, excellent facilities, the same language, more or less, then we've at least prepared it for you. Whether you choose to take it or not is a different different debate. I think it would be so wild to see the Raiders in sort of mid – I don't want. To, I don't know if it's going to be greatness, but they'd have a great quarterback. They'd have a really good pass rusher. You know, they'll probably hit on another player or two. They could be a really, really interesting team. And can you imagine the home field advantage if fans are going nuts <laughs> and going crazy for the Raiders and having the Denver Broncos go over there or something like that and play and playing an AFC West game? I don't know. Those are the kind of weird things. To think of. <laughs> but anyway, Mark Waller, I really appreciate you taking time and uh, educating uh, uh, my listeners on the podcast about the future of football overseas. And uh, I wish you luck in getting a team over there. Thank you so much, Peter. Appreciate it. This is the MMQB Podcast. QB Podcast. My thanks to Albert Breer and Mark Waller for their intelligent conversations. And before we go out, just a few thoughts as we sit in this dead period of the NFL offseason about where exactly we stand right now, a little over two months from the start of NFL training camps. And I find myself thinking this week, has anything about the NFL landscape really changed? And by that, I mean, can anybody out here beat the Patriots? And, you know, Bill Polian, the Hall of Fame general manager, who's always been sort of a burr in the NFL, in the uh, New England Patriots saddle, said something recently that I found very interesting. He is not necessarily buying into the fact that the Patriots are untouchable. And he made the point that, look where the Patriots were in the middle of the third quarter in the Super Bowl. They were down 25 points to the upstart Atlanta Falcons. And Tom Brady just wore them down. 99 plays on the field for that Atlanta defense. At the end, they simply were out of gas. Hey, give a monstrous amount of credit to Tom Brady, no question about it. But if any one of about 10 plays goes different in the second half of that game, we might be singing a different tune today and talking about, hey, can the Falcons repeat? But I, I don't mean to harp on that. I just simply mean to say that when you win the Super Bowl, all bets are off. All scabs are put away. You don't there are no scars on your on your team. You're you're the champion. And everybody sort of forgets that you're behind 28 to 3 and getting your butts kicked for the first whatever 35 minutes of the Super Bowl. And again, hats off to the Patriots absolutely a tremendous job in making that comeback. They are a team for the ages. They're probably the best team of our lifetime, at least unless you're almost 60 like me, and then you think of the Steelers of the 70s as the best team of your lifetime. But I I just want to make this one point. I do not go into the 2017 season thinking that, well, it's the Patriots and everybody else. I just don't do that. We're assuming way too much about the New England Patriots. We're assuming that Tom Brady at 40 will continue to be the man that defies time. 
And do I think he's going to play great this year? Yeah. Will I be shocked if for the first time since getting a knee injury now nine years ago, would I be shocked that he, he gets hurt you know, at, at age 40? No, and nobody should be shocked. But, but be that as it may, I still think the Patriots are going to be great. I think they're going to win their division again for the 900th year in a row. But I'll just tell you, there's a couple of teams that really interest me just to watch how they are growing right now. And again, I'm not saying that either one of these teams is going to climb Mount Patriot this year and beat them. But there's two teams in the AFC that I will be watching very, very closely. The first, you probably guessed, it's the Oakland Raiders. I think they have a state-of-the-art offensive player in Derek Carr. I think they have a state-of-the-art rush uh, rusher in... Uh, you know, obviously, you know, if anybody looks at Khalil Mack and says that, uh, you know, he's not where this game is going in terms of a guy who's strong and very fast and quick, you know, you're, you're not watching the right game. But I think, so I think they've got enough to challenge New England. Uh, the one problem is that if there's an NFC championship game, it's probably going to be in, or an AFC championship game, rather. It's probably going to be in New England because I just don't see Oakland winning, uh, you know, winning 14 and in that tough division, the AFC West, uh, you know, and, and winning home field advantage. Now, the other team's probably going to surprise you. The other team's the Tennessee Titans. I love what Tennessee has done in two consecutive, two consecutive off-seasons. I mean, first of all, obviously, they have, uh, you know, a left tackle of the future in Taylor Lewan, and, and they have their quarterback of the future, obviously, uh, in uh, uh, Marcus Mariota. But I think what has happened since John Robinson has come in and started running the show as the general manager, he basically has put a blueprint into place that says, we are going to basically build a seawall around our quarterback that didn't quite work last year, but I think for the long term will work. When you have your left tackle and right tackle of the long-term future, when you have a backfield that is going to be able to run the ball in adverse circumstances, which I think the Titans do, uh, I, I think it's it's incredibly well-suited for a quarterback like Mariota to succeed. Now, it worries me a little bit on the other side of the ball. I like them up the middle on their defense. I don't love them on the edge. I don't love their ability to get to the quarterback, and I don't love their ability to cover. So they still have some Achilles heels that I think John Robinson will be addressing in future drafts and maybe in free agency. But I think Tennessee is going to take a jump this year. And so those are the two teams in the AFC. Uh, and again, I'm going to defy um, – basically common sense because you look at history and history says that every year the Super Bowl loser really struggles the next year. Um, it's been 40 some odd years since the Super Bowl loser has come out, come back to win the Super Bowl the next year. So in my opinion, I, I think that there's a lot of reasons to not like Atlanta, but I'm going to like Atlanta and I'm going to be bullish on Atlanta too. So as I sit here right now, to me, I think the three teams with the best shot of giving New England a great game in mid to late January, um, as I look at my crystal ball, are Atlanta, 
Tennessee, and Oakland. We'll see what happens, but I'd love to hear your arguments too. Drop me a very, very angry line uh, here at the podcast. Please reply, and uh, you know I'm going to be off for the next couple of weeks. I'm going on a 60th birthday trip to the wilds of Oregon uh, with my family, uh, and I'll be back here in early June to talk more football with you. But send me some comments about what I've just said and tell me how idiotic I am, and um, I would love to respond to a few of those. But anyway, have a great couple of weeks. Have a great Memorial Day. And really, doing this podcast has been a barrel of fun and really look forward to doing it again in 2017. Thanks to my guests, Albert Breer of the MMQB and the NFL's Mark Waller. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to the other great episodes in the MMQB series, such as my conversations with Tom Brady, Adam Schefter, and John Harbaugh. You can find these on the MMQB.com, on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. You can also hear the MMQB podcast with Peter King on Sirius XM Radio every Saturday morning at 7 Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM Channel 82. Thanks to the fine folks at Digital Media for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsor this week, Harry's. Please support Harry's the way they support this podcast. And I'll see you next week.